16. It just so happens to be on page 812 in this Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. 812. Starting with verse 1, chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm not Pastor Chris. Pastor Chris right now is on a plane. They should be landing soon with his son, Ethan, and the rest of the eighth grade class from Grace School down the road. They are on their way to Washington, D.C. So the eighth graders are there, and Pastor Chris is joining them. And so a couple weeks ago, he asked me to fill in. Uh, if you don't know who I am, um, my name is Drew Williams. I'm the director of Worship, Music, and the Arts, which is a big fancy title for Have Guitar, Will Travel. <laughs> and, um, but it really is my pleasure to be here serving and working alongside the rest of the really talented musicians and hanging out with the kids in the youth group and being here with you guys every Sunday. So let's dive in. A few weeks ago, we asked ourselves as a community a question said, can you really be, can you really believe in Jesus without being a follower of Jesus? And that question stirred up a lot of constructive debate, and it left a lot of us wrestling with our own faith walks. 
So in response to the searching, we've now started as a congregation a, a workout regimen as we discover what it means to be the body of Christ and how to get that body in shape. So I'll ask another question. Are there parts of our bodies that are just long for the ride? Or does each member, each organ, have a specific role it was designed for? In the same way, can any true member of the body of Christ really just be a spectator? Or do we all have our own roles and purposes that we are designed for? Now, as we've been discovering these last few weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks to us about the five roles that Christ operated out of to do his ministry. Those are, again, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor or shepherd, and teacher. These are fundamental roles that we looked at as being part of our spiritual DNA. Now, all of us are created in the image of God, and therefore, all of us have all five of these roles created in us from the start. Now, I had a, a bulletin insert, but I've been told that none of you have the bulletin insert, so I had to change and make an extra slide. There's a test online that you can take if you would like, um, but this, it's, it's like one of those inventories of, of a way of furthering discovering as a tool to help us discover what are some of the ministries that we are already strong in. Um, but make sure it's just a tool. Hold on to it loosely. It doesn't, it's not the end-all, be-all. So when we look at these five roles, we don't start out at the level of Jesus. Jesus was perfect in every single one of these. But instead, we have this, this lifelong process of following and dis being discipled by Jesus that involves the growth and maturing of these roles in us. So we think of this in terms of our base and our phase ministry. Now, your base ministry is the one that you have for life. It's, it's the one you're most naturally strong in because it's given to you by God. We see this in verse 7 of Ephesians 4. It says, To each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So we understand that the outpouring of grace from the Holy Spirit is given to us in the form of and with the purpose to be lived into these five roles. So we each start with a base that we're stronger with. But there's times in our life when, when God allows us to discover and understand the other ministries by bringing us through them for a brief time. We call this our phase ministry. Now, at any given time, we might have, we, we definitely have our base ministry that we're strongest in, that God's created us in, in us, but we're also operating out of at least one phase ministry. And so, for example, maybe you're being called to teach a class on how to read the Bible, and that is not a very comfortable notion for you. Maybe your base is pastor, you love shepherding people, you, you really are good at caring for the community, but you sense that God's calling you into a phase of being a teacher. So it's, it's through this process that God is going to mature us and grow us and strengthen things that we're weak in. And so that as we're building up and getting stronger in that phase, it ends up rounding out and strengthening our base ministry as well. Because the whole point is through this process, we grow and mature. And as it says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Now, that's on an individual level, but let's look on a corporate level, because it's not just on our own, but we come together as a community, and we each have different gifts 
and we balance each other out. So if you guys want to follow along with me, I love just reading straight from Scripture. So again, it's page 812, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 14. It was he, Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Now, these roles are meant to come together in community and build each other up because what that does is it acts as, as a safeguard for the church. We act as bodyguards for each other. We build up the immune system of the body against some really common infections. And Paul lists off three of them. The first one he talks about is we will no longer be infants. And Paul here is talking about spiritual infancy or spiritual stagnation where we're growing older, but we're not maturing in our faith. A lot, a lot of Christians have this very simple moral code that they got when they were in Sunday school or maybe as an adult through an alpha course or something like that, and they're content with stopping their learning at that point. They don't continue to dig into the word. They don't continue to seek out discipling relationships with other believers so that they can mature in their faith. And so Paul is saying, don't let that happen. When we have the five roles working together, we can build each other up. The second one that Paul talks about is, right after that, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. It's really easy for immature Christians, ones who are still earlier in their walk with Jesus, to be tossed around by any fad doctrine that's out there. Instability in our faith comes out when we're not placing our firm foundation on the solid rock of Jesus alone. When we build our faith on the sand of an incomplete knowledge of Scripture or on the sand of just our parents' faith and we're not living into it on our own and owning our own faith, it's way too easy to be swept away by the waves of whatever fad doctrines out there that we, don't, we, don't, we can't tell how much of it is just a half-truth and how much of it is actually founded in Scripture. And this is talking about in the third one that Paul lists where he talks about the deceitful scheming and cunning and craftiness of deceitful men. Deception occurs when we fall prey to spiritual manipulation. Satan, the father of lies, cannot create. Only God can create. Satan takes what God took, twists it. That's how he makes things that should be really good. Marriage, families, love, and twists it to what we see as bad in the world. Of like, why did this happen? Because it's twisted. In the same way, false teachers are people that are just trying to um, get people to follow them but aren't really founded and being led by the Spirit, what they do is they prey on believers who don't know what they believe. And so the believer hear this half-truth and take it at face value and don't have enough of their own personal understanding of Scripture or their own personal walk with Jesus to be able to discern the hidden lies in there. And Paul's talking about these are problems in the church, and they've been running rampant since Paul wrote the letter, so they're not new. They've been around. These are happening because of our lack of recognition of the five ministries, of, of raising people up into their, if, into their roles and into their strengths. 
And it's our lack of openness of being willing to do it ourselves. But if we are willing to acknowledge our calling into these roles and then willing to submit ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we can then mature. And if we're in a community of people who are doing the same thing, we can be stay accountable to the community whose whole aim is to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith. And then it also says, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, in an effort to continue learning about the roles we've, we've been learning about, let's recap. We talked about two weeks ago about the apostle and a word to describe apostles, visionary or one who is sent out. But apostles don't go on their own. They provoke others to share the vision of what's beyond. Through their own personal abiding time with the Lord, they, they seek his vision. And then they verify it within the community before they're able to launch any voyages out. Last week, we talked about the prophet. Prophets are listeners. They stand back from the circumstances to get a better picture of what's going on. Any revelation that they receive from personal time with God is then submitted to the interpretation of the community before any application is carried out. You sense a theme that people who are operating under the leading of the Holy Spirit and trying to do it in the right way, we receive what the Lord's given us, we test it and bring it out to our community before we just run, run with it, and that keeps us from going rogue. This week, we're going to be talking about the evangelist role. Now, evangelist is the word that comes from the Greek word that means one who brings good news. Now, evangelists ask, are there new people entering the kingdom of God? Here's some other characteristics of evangelists. Evangelists share good news. Originally, the term was saved for a messenger who brought back the good news of victory from the front lines of battle. And that way, evangelists were able to encourage boldness and perseverance, even though there's combat and struggle going on. For us, in our context, evangelists bring back the good news of Jesus Christ and the victory that he has won over sin and death. Evangelists are excited to share that news with others that don't know or haven't heard yet. They're the messengers. That's what draws evangelists to those outside of the faith. There are people outside of these walls who are looking for or have forgotten to even think of a sign of hope. Evangelists know that their news is life-changing and earth-shattering, and that's what makes it good news. Another example, another characteristic of evangelists is they know how to communicate their news through story. They're storytellers. They see the good news of Jesus first and foremost as a narrative, a story to be, take part of. And they view the Bible in the same way. Doctrine and theology are very useful, but only as far as they can be used to tell the story of the gospel. Parables, analogies, any other storytelling technique, these are all tools that the evangelist uses to share the good news. And they're really aware that there's others out there who haven't heard it yet. So they have this sense of urgency to share it. Evangelists are always ready to share the gospel whenever, no matter the circumstances, even when it's difficult. And they have a unique ability 
to share the good news in a way that people can understand and receive it. They can contextualize it. Evangelists, when they come home, they help their own congregation by being witnesses to how Jesus is working in their life and has been working in their life. They teach others how to live and share their story and God's story contextually. Now, evangelists know that they can't be the only ones that share the good news, and so they got to recruit. They're infectious communicators of the gospel message. They recruit people to the cause because of how excited they are and that passion comes out. They call for a response to God's covenant invitation, our redemption in Christ. And they also draw believers to engage in the wider mission of the expanding of the kingdom. Evangelists also have a deep heart for reconciliation. They have a love for all people and a desire to see what was lost in the fall to be mended and want people's relationships with God to be mended, with each other to be mended, with themselves. However, the primary concern of evangelist is helping the body incarnate the good news of the gospel. They view congregational life from the eyes of those outside. They, they see what kind of things are we subconsciously proclaiming? What hope are we declaring with our lives? Evangelists perceive and then help sculpt the good news as it's lived out in their community. They help connect the congregation to what's happening in the neighborhood. They invite the congregation to proclaim the good news by being witnesses and agents of redemption in their own jobs and their own surrounding communities. Evangelists work to find ways to, to meaningfully connect Christians and non-Christians. They look for practical ways for the rest of the body to meet and serve their neighbors and surrounding communities. Evangelists help to create and cultivate a welcoming environment that helps the community live out and practice hospitality, not only as a way of life, but as a means of sharing the gospel. Now, Jesus, of course, is a perfect example of evangelist. And Jesus is a perfect example of every one of the five roles, and we always go back to him as where we start for our example. There's lots of places in Scripture where we see Jesus operating in the evangelist role, but one of them is in John, Gospel of John chapters 3 and 4. Jesus talks to Nicodemus, and then later on he talks to the Samaritan woman. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he had some questions for Jesus based on some of the parables that he had been using. And so Jesus, being a perfect evangelist and knowing how to perfectly communicate, knows how to communicate the good news in a way that people can both understand it but also receive it. But that does, didn't necessarily mean that Nicodemus was open to receiving it. He was closed off, but Jesus took earthly terms to explain heavenly things. That's a way to communicate. So he contextualized the message. Later on, Jesus is um, meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, a woman that he wasn't supposed to be around, but he had no fear of social constraints, no fear of the historical ethnic tension, and instead he spoke boldly with love, telling her that he was the living water that she was searching for. There's lots of other examples in Scripture of people operating the, the evangelist role. One of them is in Acts chapter 8. And if you want to turn there, it's on page 762 in the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 8, um, we pick up with Philip. And Philip is talked about as being an evangelist in both chapter 8 but also chapter 21. But in chapter 8, this is right after the persecution of the church has really taken off. Stephen just got stoned. 
Um, the church is on high alert and scared. But Philip goes boldly to Samaria and starts just preaching. And he's casting out demons and he's preaching with authority. And in verse 6, we see, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. He captured their attention. He drew them in with the good news. Later on, another story with Philip we're familiar with is he's out walking. The Holy Spirit says, hey, take a left. And he goes, okay, I'll take a left. And then he meets this Ethiopian official who's reading out of the Old Testament. And he walks up to him. The Ethiopian guy's like, hey, can you explain this to me? I'm not really understanding. And so Philip is able to explain the Old Testament passage from Isaiah. And verse 35, it says that he began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He started with where the Ethiopian was at and immediately brought it back to reflect the good news of Jesus. Let's bring it forward to the present. There's lots of examples of Christians operating in the evangelist role. Some really easy examples are Billy Graham, Greg Laurie of the Harvest Crusades, Francis Chan. But the thing is, you don't have to gather together thousands of people in order to be an evangelist. Anyone who shares the good news of Jesus Christ and then connects it to the lives of the people around them is operating in the evangelist role. Let's look outside the church. We can see all kinds of examples of people operating in the evangelist heart that God's built into all of us, even if they're not being evangelists for Jesus. There's salespeople like Billy Mays, my doppelganger. <laughs> Billy Mays and other salespeople like him are able to recruit you to their product because they so passionately share the good news of how it's going to change your life. Politicians speak effectively to excite people and provoke them to action. Public relations officers build entire careers based on how they represent their company so that it shares the good news with others. What about Jared from the Subway commercials? He's been doing it for like 15 years now. He experienced life-changing circumstances, and he absolutely incarnated and embodied the result of those life-changing experiences. And then he went out to tell everyone else he knew so that they could also experience his good news and make it part of their own story. Do you see how all these people are operating out of the evangelist role? The problem is, though, these are all examples of people not using their evangelist heart to the fullest potential. We were created to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And until the evangelist heart is wed together with the good news, it's never going to reach its full potential. Now, even when evangelists are talking about Jesus, we might still have bad experiences with them. For many of us who maybe first recoiled at the the mention of evangelist, it's probably because you had an experience with an immature or an unrealized evangelist. So let's look at some characteristics of what makes up an inexperienced evangelist. An inexperienced evangelist might be so focused on reaching those outside the church, they completely forget 
and neglect the need for nurturing and strengthening the recruits that are already inside the door. They can have the propensity to just get them in the door and then love them and leave them and just abandon the new disciples they just made in search for still more. Inexperienced and immature evangelists can be so results-oriented and such go-getters that they're tempted to reduce the gospel message down to just keeping people out of hell. Redemption from sin and hell are important, but having that be the entire message misses Jesus' invitation to grace-filled discipleship and the availability of the kingdom. It becomes all about the afterlife and keeping people out of hell when we die. And it ignores the power of the kingdom while living here on earth. They can become so earnest in their desire to see people come to faith, to say the prayer, to get rostered, to get a membership, to join a class, that they forget that Jesus' command was to make disciples, not make believers. Now, a mature evangelist, one who has been grown by the work of the Holy Spirit and is regularly submitting themselves to that process, they can look different. Just like the apostle and the prophet, there's, there's, we think of it as in three steps that we go through as an evangelist when operating in that role. The first comes from personal time spent with the Lord. And that is perception. Evangelists ask God to connect them with the people who are ready. Ones that the Holy Spirit is preparing to hear the good news the evangelist has to share. After they've perceived who it is that God has softened to them, they've got to be present with them. In order to bring hope to broken people in a broken world, we have to spend time in that place. We sit in the brokenness with the broken, and we incarnate the hope, being hopeful, acting hopeful, all while stretching ourselves beyond our comfort zones. These are all ways that the Holy Spirit uses us to bring light to the darkness. However, it's not enough to just be present and act hopeful. We got to bear witness to why we are hopeful. We got to make sure there is proclamation of the good news. We got to offer a show and tell of how Jesus is working in our lives. We don't offer arguments, we just share our story and how Jesus has impacted it. Evangelists share the hope we have by connecting the immediate need with a deeper reality of Jesus and the kingdom. Now, that's a lot of information about evangelists. But it's not going to help us at all if we don't know how to apply it and how to use it in our lives. So, as a way of modeling for you how I'm learning very slowly how to live into the evangelist role, let me share with you something that I've been chewing on for the last couple months. Here is you. <laughs> There's all kinds of ways to describe you. Maybe your sex, your age, your socioeconomic status. We're going to call this who you are. And if this is who you are, then this is what you do. This could be your job, your favorite activities, your daily tasks. And a lot of times, what you do is a good way to describe who you are. But we don't like that. We don't like to be defined by what we do. We don't like to be just the teacher or just a sales rep or just a traveling retiree. We like 
what we do to inform who we are. We like to be a teacher that is so passionate about knowledge and loves to impart that passion to the next generation. We want to be the sales rep that believes so much in the product, they can't wait to share that good news with more customers. We want to be the traveling retiree that has worked hard and earned the right to see the world around them. But in all honesty, though, both of these are subject to what we worship. If we worship knowledge, we're going to align ourselves with that knowledge. And everything we do will come out of our passion for that knowledge. If we worship money, we're going to spend our whole lives holding on to what we have while trying to get more. When we worship ourselves, our sense of self and what we do keep fluctuating. Since what we worship keeps flip-flopping and is independable. Our lives revolve around ourselves. Our abilities go only as far as our own strength and our own circumstances. Our sense of self isn't dependable because what we're worshiping keeps changing. But that all changes when we submit ourselves to God. Everything solidifies. Who we are flows out of the identity that's given to us from our Father. And therefore, what we do is just naturally obedient to, who, to what he wants. Not because we have to, but because if we are, derives directly from who he is, then what we do lines up with what he would do. Now, if we recognize our father as king, that adds a second component. When our God, and we realize that he is not only our father, but he's king of the universe, then that means that what we do and who we are gets colored by that. Our identity as his royal ambassadors now carries the authority of the king. Our obedient actions towards our world now carry the same power as if the king were acting and doing the task himself. Jesus shows us how this works perfectly. He is perfectly submitted to his Father and perfectly conducive to the Holy Spirit working through him. And that informed who he was and what he was able to do. But you might say, yeah, well, that's all well and good for Jesus, but I can't be Jesus. But let me push you in this, though. Consider this. Jesus didn't show up to be a godly example that we strive for and never attain. Jesus came to be the perfect human as an example of who we were created to be. Jesus came to show us we are able to grow into the fullness of who he is. It's him coming and saying, look, here I am. Here's what you're supposed to be like. This is what I created you to be able to be like. The more we know Christ and follow him, the more we learn to know ourselves and what we are purposed to do, our covenant identity and our kingdom responsibility. And what does this mean? If we submit ourselves to God as our father and our king and allow the Holy Spirit to empower us to move and grow all while maturing in our faith, we have the power and the authority to redeem and restore our world through the grace given us by Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? 
Our Father loves us so much that he helps us grow and mature and become more like him all while using us to bring hope and light to a dark world. Isn't that news that's worth sharing? I invite you to pray with me. God, you are the good news. I pray that today you've awakened our evangelist heart, awakened the passion in us that desires to share you. God, give us, give us the boldness to share it. Give us the confidence to know who you are and who we are in you. And help us tell everyone we know about you. God, for those of us who are strong in the evangelist heart, God, I pray that you just embolden us and that you direct us clearly, that you, you put people in our path that we can be practicing our sharing with. For those of us that are weaker, God, I pray that you help us see that there are baby steps. That we don't all have to be Billy Graham. That we can submit ourselves to you and you are going to grow us through that ministry. And God, I just praise you right now for who you are. And just that the fact that your news is so good that we don't have to work it up. We don't have to jazz it up. It's already the best news. That you came for us to redeem and to restore and to bring us along with you. In your holy and precious name, amen. As we receive the offering and our tithes, I pray that I just ask that you guys reflect through this music and through your own personal prayer.